Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. Uh, We are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew today, and we are finishing up chapter 11. We've been in chapter 11 for several weeks now, and one of the main themes in both chapter 10, so the previous chapter and this chapter, chapter 11, is about those who reject Jesus and his message versus those who receive it. And as we finish up chapter 11, we'll, concede, uh, we'll continue to see this theme in these five verses. And the question is, who are those who will receive Jesus and his message? Who are these people? Who are the ones that are open to receiving God's message through Jesus? Now, if you look back to the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples and he gives them authority to heal the sick and to raise the dead as as well as preach the message of repentance. And, And if the disciples are rejected by the town, remember what they're supposed to do? says that they're supposed to take their peace with them and knock the dust off of their sandals and head to another town. So it's it's this kind of this uh, picture of of, uh, judgment upon that or, um, you know, I I came to do a job and so I'm going to walk away guiltless. Now it's upon you. I gave the message and now it's upon you and how you receive that message. Matthew tells us that Jesus follows after them as they're going into these towns, and he enters the towns as well and ministers to the people. And it is here where he denounces some of these towns. So this is in chapter 11. And he compares them like Sodom and the day of judgment. And that it would be better for places like Sodom on the day of judgment than for the towns that are rejecting this message. The reason, because they were well aware of the law and the prophets and the prophecies and the promised king who will come and reign on the throne of David. So these towns that Jesus is going in and he's ministering to them, they knew the law. They knew the Old Testament. They read the prophets. They knew that the Messiah was to come. And there he is right in front of them and they don't see it. Their hearts are hardened, and they reject him, they reject his message. So last week, Pastor Jeff covered chapter 11, verses 16 through 24, which points out this, and I'm going to call it this. He, he points out this unyielding rejection of Jesus. This unyielding rejection, what I mean by that is, if you, if you think back to the previous passage, Jesus compares that generation to uh, children that are playing around and one child's playing the flute and the children refuse to dance. The people refuse to dance. And then it's a, um, a dirge, which is this, this music of mourning and they refuse to mourn. So it's this idea of the message coming to the people in various ways and the people rejecting it. And so it's this unyielding, unyielding rejection, or another way of looking at it, and this is how the Old Testament points to it, is that they are stiff-necked, which means you ever have a, you know, you slept, sleep on your, in your bed wrong, and you have a stiff neck, and so the rest of the day, you, you know, whenever you need to talk to somebody, you're, you're turning like this, right? You're unable to turn your head. Well, that is a picture of unrepentance, Unrepentant or repentance is, is turning from one direction to another. And so being stiff-necked is this unwilling to turn. And that is what's being described here in the previous verses, 16 through 24. Jesus is talking about these, these cities being stiff-necked or, or being stubborn or having unyielding, an unyielding rejection towards Jesus and his message. Therefore, Jesus gives a harsh, um, 
but it's a it's a um, it's not it, he gives a harsh word to them. He gives a harsh word, but it's not to damn the people he was speaking to, but it was to shock them into responding with repentance. So when he says, you know what, it will be far better for Sodom than for you when the day of judgment comes. When he's speaking that kind of judgment on them, he's not just shutting the door on them and and washing his hands of them. He's actually, he's saying this out of love and out of care for the people. He's trying to shock them into repentance. It's like, you know, um, I have uh, teenagers um, that like to sleep and, you know, they're supposed to get up to do things. And um, actually, even my younger ones have a hard time waking up sometimes. You know, the best way to wake them up is a, a cold water on their face, right? You startle them awake. And this is what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to startle them awake for their eyes to be open. So it's a clear warning of the dangers they face as they as they refuse to come to Jesus. And so now in our passage this morning, we do see a bit of a change in his message. So after the strong words in verses 16 through 24, this, these words of judgment, he gives a compassionate call to come to him. And here's the call. And this is kind of the main idea of the passage that we're looking at this morning. Here's the call. It's to humble yourself before the revealer and he will give you rest. Humble yourself before the revealer, and he will give you rest. So with that, let's stand together, and I'm going to read this passage. This is Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. It says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, Lord, we ask that you would speak, that you would reveal yourself to us in a mighty way, that we would understand what it means to rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so the first point that I want to give, this is from verses 25 and 26. It is this, that it's the Father's good pleasure to conceal and reveal. It is the Father's good pleasure to conceal and reveal. Let's read this, verse 25 and 26. It says, at the time Jesus declared, this is a prayer. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So if you think back to the previous verses, this is after Jesus declares judgment upon the city. He transitions to a prayer of thanksgiving. And he's thanking the Father for hiding things. Hiding them, but also revealing them. So the question is, is what are these things? What are these things that Jesus is referring to? What is he concealing and what is he revealing? And I think it comes down to the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And what is wrapped up in who is Jesus is also his message that he's giving. So it's about his identity and the message. The identity of Jesus is at the crux of everything that we understand as Christians. If he isn't the son of God, 
If he isn't the promised king, if he isn't the Messiah, then our faith means absolutely nothing. It all boils down to who he is. And so if, if he is not the son of God, we are still dead in our transgressions and deserving of God's wrath. But here's the wonderful thing that we've been reading throughout Matthew. What Matthew is, is telling us in his gospel that there are signs and wonders that he is performing, and these signs and wonders are to show that he is truly the Son of God and that he is revealing these things to little children. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 and 17 through 17 says this, He's, he's walking with his disciples here. He asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who do they think I am? What's the identity they, that they think I have? And Simon Peter replied, well, so he asks that question, and I think it's Simon Peter who says, well, some say a prophet, some say a good teacher. And then Jesus turns it around and says, okay, so who do you say that I am? And this is Peter's response. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who you are. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It wasn't through the wise and the understanding. It wasn't those Pharisees and scribes or the religious leaders that revealed this to you. Who revealed it to him? Well, it continues on. It says, but my father who is in heaven, that is who revealed this to you. So here's the point. It's the father that opens the eyes and gives understanding to the important truth about Jesus and his identity. But look also at who he reveals it to. He reveals it to little children. And what does he mean by that? Who is he revealing this to? And I don't think it's literally little children. But he's describing the type of people that he's revealing it to. And I think it comes down to this. We, we were talking about this in Sunday school class. And it was funny because I was trying to get the Sunday school class to ask the question and to come up with some ideas. But right away, they came up with the right answer. So I'm like, oh, but, but it comes down to this. What it means is that it's those who are lowly and humble and needy, right? If you think of the qualities of a child and what a child, it, especially like an infant, right? An infant is needy, right? When they're crying, well, kind of what's the rule if they're crying? They need something, right? Either food, diaper, or sleep. It's like one of those things that they need, right? They're, they're crying out in need. And so it's this, this call of uh, little children, it's this picture of those who are in need or understand that they're in need. So a, a, a wonderful picture of this, we've already looked at it, is Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. So, so listen to the description of these people or this type of uh, character traits that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? They're hungry. They're in need. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the, the peacemakers. And so this is a picture. I think this is a picture of little children who the father is revealing the son to. This is, this is the kind of heart that Jesus is looking for. And you know what? This actually, that he's revealing this to little children this, this reveals who Jesus is and who God is. The kind of character that the Father is. He's not revealing these things to 
to the understanding and the wise, but to little children, those who are in need. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2 talks about God in this way. He says, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, that he will cast his eyes upon, who, who he cares about, who he wants to engage with and have a relationship with. Who is that? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the kind of heart that God reveals Jesus to. So we too, who acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and Savior, you know what? We can, we can give thanks to the Lord. We can give thanks to him because it isn't that we are any smarter or, or wiser or special. That's not why these things have been revealed to us. This is why we acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah and our Savior. It's because God, by his good pleasure, revealed Jesus to us. It's through his good pleasure that we know Jesus and acknowledge that he is the Son of God. There's a great quote by John Calvin that says, we always seek what is brilliant and nothing seems more incongruous than that the heavenly kingdom should consist of the offscurings and refuse of the people. And yet it is of God's wonderful purpose that with the whole world in his hands, he prefers to choose his people from the humble masses rather than from the leaders who might adorn Christ's name with their excellence. You see, it is God's will or his good pleasure to do this. God's concealing and revealing points to God's sovereign grace and his sovereign will. He hardens hearts, he softens hearts, he blinds those who see and he makes the blind see. Therefore, there's this picture here that we need to understand in these verses of this idea of judgment and grace. There's an aspect of judgment as he's hiding, he's hiding these things from the wise and the understanding. And there's a sense of grace, of wonderful sovereign grace as he's revealing this to those who are lowly. And so in that, we, as God's people, should also give thanks. To thank the Lord that he reveals the Son to his people. So, it's the Father's good pleasure to conceal and reveal. That's point number one. Point number two, Jesus reveals the Father. This is verse 27. Let's look at that. It says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So this verse is, it's packed with theological truths. It gives us insight into the divinity of Jesus so look at it again. It says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And so that phrase, all things, we need to take a look at that. What does he mean by all things? It, this is significant. It points to the truth that Jesus is preeminent. In other words, what I mean by that is he is far greater than any other person who came before them, before himself. So he is greater than Abraham. And if you think of Abraham, the father of the Israelites, he's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses who led the Israelites out of Egypt and gave the Israelites the law. He's greater than King David who established a kingdom and established this reign in Israel. And he's greater than any of the prophets who, who spoke the word of the Lord. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 describes him in this way. 
It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, look at this, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Again, it says, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So when Jesus says all things have been handed over to him, he really means all things, which points to the divinity of Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus has been hinting at all along. So through the fulfillment of prophecy and through his unparalleled authority over nature and the spiritual world that he's been doing through these miracles, right? These mighty works that we've been reading about in Matthew. He's been, he's been displaying his authority over all things, even authority over sin. He has authority to forgive sin. And so through all this, Jesus is showing that he is, he is truly God made flesh. And so in verse 27, Jesus, he's, he's hinting at this. He's, he's unveiling it just a little. He's, he's talking about how he and the Father are one. But also Jesus describes not only who he is, but his unique relationship with the Father, he says that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. You see, we know the Father and the Son through divine revelation, right? So if you go through the Old Testament, you know there, there's ways in which God revealed himself to his people, and it was usually through prophets. So he would go to the prophet, and he would say, speak these words to my people, and the prophet would have to come out and speak the words, Today, it's through his word. So we have his words in written form. We have these Bibles and we can open it up and it is the word of God. And that's how he speaks or that's how he reveals himself today as we read a book or that we hear it being preached through a, a preacher. So there's these mediums, you know what mediums? Like uh, that's the word we get media from, right? So media is just shortened for medium. And it's, you know, this information that gets transferred over to us in a particular way. So it's, you know, like uh, video or music or literature. It's information coming through a medium. But here's something that's interesting. When it comes to knowing the son, knowing the father and the father knowing the son, there is no medium. There is no barrier. There is no uh, translation that needs to take place. There is a unique relationship between the Father and the Son. And it comes down to this, uh, this mystery, and, it, and it's this picture of, well, we talk about it this way, this doctrine of the Trinity, right? Right? And this aspect of that uh, the Father and the Son are one in essence. There's a unity there, but they're in three persons, which means that there's also uh, a, a distinction between them. There's diversity. So this picture of unity and diversity within the Trinity. And it's this mystical or mysterious relationship that it's very hard to, to uh, wrap our minds around. But it's a beautiful mystery that shows the depth of unity and love 
and knowledge between the Son and the Father. And this is, and, and Jesus is alluding to this in our passage, but he also describes it in other gospels as well. So let's look at John chapter 14, verse 8 through 11. This is Jesus having a conversation with his disciples, and one of those, Philip, asks a question. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So think about this for a minute. This is way into chapter 14. So Jesus has already been doing all these miraculous works. He's been teaching. He's been revealing himself in various ways. And apparently Philip hasn't gotten it yet. And so it sounds like Philip needs something more. Hey, Jesus, show us the Father and then, and then it will be enough. This is how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Wait a minute. Philip is saying, no, 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 show me the Father. And Jesus is turning around and says, wait a minute, you don't, you don't know who I am? Are you serious? I've been with you for so long and you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever, and here it is, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you do not speak uh, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. So here, John is, is revealing to us it's an interaction between Jesus and Philip, this conversation that he's having with him that's very similar to what's going on in our passage this morning, and chapter 10 and 11, this, this interaction of understanding who is Jesus, what's his identity, and Jesus is pointing to here who he really is. The question is, is will people be willing to accept it? Will people be willing to accept it? I think John sums it up quite nicely. And this is what Jesus is revealing to the little children. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. So it's about who he is, and it's about the message that he's giving. So point one, it's the Father's good pleasure to conceal and reveal. Point two, Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus reveals the Father, and it's because he is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. So here's point number three. This is verses 28 and 29. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this is where we see the change from judgment to compassion. He's talking about those who he has revealed the truth and those who he's concealed it to. But now here comes this call. This is the heart of Jesus. He sees his people as sheep without a shepherd. In previous passage, he says that they were harassed and helpless. They're like little children, and he is calling them. They're, they're out there wandering, in search, in need of something. And so he gives this invitation or this call to them. And I think this is really interesting. If the verse, if you can put the verses back up there. Evie, these three wonderful calls. Number one, to come to me. Come to me. It's like a little, it's, it's like a parent calling out to his child to come. 
The next one, to take my yoke upon you. So what does he mean by that? This picture of a yoke. And so any of you, this is going to um, show you my age. Do you ever remember uh, this old video game called um, Oregon's Trail? Oh, I heard the laugh over there. Back in the day, this was like uh, when the computers, I think they were called 286, right? Like this really old computer. I think mice ran them on a wheel, you know, the, to charge them up. But it was this old game where um, you had to like, uh, I think it was like um, to, to help you um, with finances, you know, because you had to buy so much food and equipment and stuff like that to try to make it to Oregon, I guess, or something along those lines. And, uh, but you had to buy oxen, you know, and I think there was this picture of the oxen and they were yoked. That means that there was this thing that they, this apparatus that they would put on them. And, you know, like farmers would use it back in the day too. So if you ever watch like Little House on the Prairie or something like that, the oxen would be yoked together and they would be pulling, um, you know, to, uh, to work the fields. And uh, so that's the picture of these beasts of burden with this yoke upon them and, and, and doing this work. But here's the interesting thing. Okay, so he's saying, take this yoke upon yourself. Take my yoke. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I don't really like yokes. I don't want something strapped around my neck. I don't want to be tied down. I don't want to be burdened. But there's something else here, this, this yoke. And so he says, not just take my yoke, but he also says, learn from me. Wait a minute, what? And so here's another aspect of being yoked. And, and this, I read about this. I don't know this from experience. I'm not a farmer. Uh, I don't have oxen, nor do I have a yoke. Um, but a lot of times what I've heard is that there is a, maybe a younger oxen, ox, a younger ox with an older one. They're yoked together so that the younger one can learn from the older one. So I find this very interesting that he says, take on, come to me, take my yoke, and then also learn from me. So it's almost as if Jesus is going, you know what? Here's my yoke. I'm in it too. Come with me and let's go. It's almost this picture of um, maybe in a sense, uh, you know, we say follow me into the heavenly kingdom but it's almost like, come alongside me. Walk this trail with me. Unite with me. Yoke with me. Let's do this together. Let's be unified. I think this is the picture that Jesus is describing here, right? And so there's this wonderful, um, you know, it's really interesting how I, there's a lot of connections between the gospel of John and Matthew, which is really interesting because John, he tells different stories, different interactions, but Jesus is describing the same things in his teachings. And so there's a time when Jesus is engaged with his disciples and he's praying over them. And he's praying for them to abide in him and to be united with him. And he prays in this way, this, this idea of, um, may, may you be united with me as I am united with my Father and the Father's united with me. May you also be united with me. He's calling for this union. And, you know, it actually plays out in the book of Ephesians when Paul, when, uh, Paul is describing uh, our relationship with God. He keeps saying throughout the book of Ephesians, in him, all these things that we have as children of God, we have them in him, this union with Christ. I think this is what Jesus is talking about here. When he says, come to me, when he says, take my yoke, and when he says, learn from me, he's calling us to be united with him.
And so here's a question for you. This is a question for all of us. Why are we so reluctant to follow after him in this way? Why would we rather labor and carry a heavy burden? You see, even though he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, I think we realize, even though it's easy and light, that it is costly. It is costly. Jesus requires us to do some things. It's, it's to submit all aspects of our lives to him. And that's not fun to do. That's not necessarily something we desire to do. A, a picture of this, this is later in Matthew chapter 16. He says it this way, verses 24 through 25. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To lose your life or to give it up. So there is this aspect of, of cost. It's giving up of something. But here's, here's an interesting aspect. You see, Jesus is coming to a deeper truth. He, he understands something about our lives and what we tend to do. And, and, he, and, he's, and he uses this imagery of, of toiling, of laboring, and having having a burden. So when he's looking at this crowd, because he's talking to this crowd here, this is what he sees. And we need to understand that we're the crowd as well. So this picture of, of having this burden upon us. So we labor and we toil we, to be good enough. And we carry a heavy burden and I think that heavy burden is made up of guilt and shame. So let me describe this for us, this, this how we labor and we toil. And, and this goes back, we can even look at this throughout Scripture. So this idea of sin plays a part in this. And, and, and sin has broke our relationship with God, that we are now separated with him. And God started making this plan started with Abraham, this plan to reconcile himself to us. And, and through that was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and this nation comes about, and they're in Egypt, and God takes them out of Egypt, and he makes these promises, and he says, I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. He makes this covenant with them. But here's something interesting about this covenant, is that it required something of the Israelites. And so Moses goes up to this mountain and there God reveals himself to Moses and he makes these commands. And, you know, if you see the, the movie, The Ten Commandments, you see the, there's 10 and they're written on stone. But if, if you actually read all the commandments, I mean, it is chapters and chapters of commands of how the Israelites were supposed to live as a nation, as God's nation. And after this was written all out, after this was spoken to the people, the people kind of go, yep, sign me up. Let's do it. And so with all these commands, with all these laws, this was a picture of this burden laid upon the people. And they thought they could carry it. They're like, no problem. We got this. But we know if we continue to read the Old Testament that they continually, that remember they're stiff-necked, <laughs> they continually turn away from the Lord. They're not able, they're not able to, to reach the standard that is required with the law. And so the picture here is what the law actually does. The, the New Testament talks about this. Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians and the book of Romans, and, and it's this picture of the law being like a mirror. Now, I don't know about you, so um, I like to have my hair, I, I like to have my hair short. You know the reason why? 
So I don't have to look in the mirror in the morning. <laughs> don't have to like try to mat something down. Now it's actually good to look in the mirror in the morning. And so sometimes Kara is like my mirror because I don't look in the mirror and she's like, uh, there's some things on your face that you need to get off. Okay. You need, to, there's some work here that you need to do. Um, we do this with our kids because sometimes like when they eat in the morning or when they brush their teeth, it's like toothpaste all over their face and they don't look in the mirror and they walk out with, you know, um, but what does the mirror do? It, it shows us re- our reflection and, and all the issues and all the problems and all the dirt and all the stains that are there. And a lot of times we don't like looking into that mirror. Oh, what am I going to find? And that's precisely what the law does. Is when we are smacked with the law, we see our insufficiencies We see the ways that we fail, and when that comes, guilt and shame come as well. We cannot hold to that standard. We cannot be righteous in the eyes of God by by trying to follow it because we always fall short, and and when we fall short, there is guilt and shame. And so there's, of course, I'm going to go back to my, my favorite book, Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory of the Christian walk. And uh, this, this guy named Evangelist comes to this man named Christian, and he tells them the gospel. And, and Christian has this burden on his back, and it's heavy. And he's mourning over it because it's, it's actually his sin and guilt and shame. And, and he's, he's wanting to get it off. And the evangelist goes, I know how you can get it off. And he points to the cross, and there's this path. He goes, follow the path to that cross, and your guilt and your shame, that burden will be taken care of. And so Christian goes on this journey. He goes, gets onto the path, going towards the cross, and then he runs into this man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Why? Right? This, and, and it's interesting, wise man, right? We, 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 we know about the wise and the understanding and how these things are hidden from them. So here's worldly wise man. And he runs into Christian and he says, hey, listen, I know a better way for you to get that load off of your back. It doesn't take as long. It's not as costly as the cross. All you have to do is go to this hill. And there's a man there named Mr. Legality. You go to his house and he'll take that burden off yet. And so Christian approaches this hill, but as he's approaching it, it seemed to get steeper than he first thought. And it rose so high that the sight of it hung over him. So as he's walking, he's like, whoa, this is bigger than I thought it was. This, this hill is steeper and oh my goodness, it is like over me. As he ventures further, he begins to be afraid that the hill will fall on his head. And he stood there trying to figure out what to do, and his burden seemed heavier than ever before, much heavier than when he had set out from his home. And so it fills Christian with dread. He's afraid that he's going to be burnt, that the burden would fall upon him and crush him. It says sweat beaded across his brow and he trembled with fear. And so this is the picture of taking on this burden. Those who are heavy laden, they're, they're trying to clean themselves or make themselves righteous by doing all these works or trying to follow these laws, whether it's the laws of the Old Testament or laws that we make up for ourselves. Because we do the exact same thing. We make up laws for ourselves to try to carry this burden. So think about what those, the ways that you may toil, the, the way that you may work to try to be righteous before God. You know, it could be even something simple as opening your Bible and reading. You know, we think to ourselves, you know, 
in order to be a good Christian, all I need to do is maybe read every day or I need to come to church every Sunday. We, we, we put on these things upon ourselves to make ourselves look good before God and before others. Like this is what makes us righteous before him. And here's the beautiful truth. Here's, this is what's so wonderful. You see, Jesus' joke is easy and the burden is light because... The sin which brings the immense guilt and shame is taken off of us and placed on him when he was nailed to the cross. You see, this is the power of the gospel, and this is really important for us to understand. Every single one of us, no matter where we're at in our lives, we need to understand this as the good news of Jesus. This is who Jesus is and why he came. Our guilt and our shame, our sin was nailed with him on the cross. We do not have to carry that burden anymore. And so the, the, the allegory, this, this story of Christian, he, he goes to the mountain and he's overwhelmed by guilt and shame and his sin. And, and actually evangelist comes back and he says, why did you veer off? And he brings Christian back onto the path and he makes his way to the cross and he kneels before the cross and the burden breaks off of his back, rolls down into a chasm to never be seen again. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. And so when he says, my yoke is easy and the burden is is light. That is exactly what he's talking about. You see, the yoke that he's talking about is not of law and works. It's faith. The yoke is faith. It's, it's coming and trusting in him and what he has done on the cross. It's coming before him humbly and lowly, like children before him. Come to him and I will give you rest. I will take that burden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So here's a question. This is how we'll close. What would it look like for your soul to be at rest? Because that's what he's talking about here in this passage. He says, your soul will be at rest. So what does it look like for your soul to be at rest? Here's another way of asking this question. Are you carrying a burden of guilt and shame this morning? Is there a burden on your back this morning? And this is what I'd like us to do, is to pause, and um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now, if you, if you will. Because we have an opportunity right now to address the guilt and shame through the practice of communion. See, this is a very appropriate time to pause when we're talking about the gospel and what the gospel is, what Jesus has done for us. And here's the thing. Communion does not absolve us from our sin. You see, communion could be like that, that yoke as well or that burden as well in the sense of we may think that we have to continually take bread and take juice and keep filling our mouths, our, our stomachs with bread and juice in order to be forgiven of our sin. That is, that is not what we do here. Communion does, does not absolve us from sin. What it is is a picture of what Christ has done for us and so what we do is by faith, trusting in him, we are taking the bread and the cup because the bread and the cup represents his body that was broken for us, broken for our transgressions. It represents the blood that was spelt for our iniquities. So basically when we're taking communion, we're saying yes. We're coming to Jesus. 
we're taking his yoke upon us that is easy and light. We're learning from him. That's what's taking place as we take communion. So this is the call for us. If you, if you have put your trust in Christ, if you acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior, if you are a follower, a disciple of him, I want to invite you to come up and partake with us. You don't have to be a member, but a follower of him. I'd also encourage you in this way. Maybe you don't see yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, but maybe this is the time that you want to make that decision. That this is the time to humble yourself before the Lord and come to him. So I would encourage you this way. If this, if this is the time now, I would also encourage you then as a, as a new follower of him to make this step to come to communion. Make, make this the time that you, you decide to follow after him, to turn and repent to him. And with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that, Lord, we can take this message to heart. Father, the, Father, the call is to come to Jesus, to take on his yoke, to have faith in him, and to learn from him. Lord, I pray that we would move towards that now, whether, whether we've been Christians for a long time. Lord, we may be still carrying burdens of guilt and shame. Pray as, as we take communion that we hand it over to you. Father, there are those here who may not acknowledge you as Lord and Savior, as, as king of their lives. And maybe it's at this moment, even in this prayer right now, where they make a decision to come to you. Father, would you do that work? We know it's only through the Spirit that you can regenerate the hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work as well. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.